Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSE for this evening's event, which forms part of the LSE Festival, Shape the World, which is taking place from Monday, the 2nd of March, to Saturday, the 7th of March, as part of a whole year of activities at LSE exploring how social science can tackle global issues. My name is Dr. Armina Ishkanyan, and I'm the Interim Executive Director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program at the International Inequalities Institute, and also an Associate Professor in the Department of Social Policy. I'm delighted this evening to welcome our guest, David Lamy, MP, to the LSE today. David has been the MP for his home constituency, <clears throat> of Tottenham since 2000 and is most renowned for leading the fight for a referendum on the final Brexit deal. David Lamy was named Politician of the Year by both GQ and the Political Studies Association, dedicating both awards to his parents, the Windrush Generation, and his friend Khadija Sae, who lost her life in Grenfell Tower. David was the first to call for an independent inquiry into the Grenfell Tower fire. He has also secured a compensation fund for the victims of the Windrush scandal, placing pressure on the government to treat the plight as an injustice to be rectified. So this evening, and the book has come out today, yes, <laughs> um, today we'll be talking um, to David about his new book, described by the Times newspaper as a superb, gripping, measured, searching book about the tribalism gripping British politics. I read it in two days over this weekend, and I immensely enjoyed it, so I highly recommend it to all of you. Um, for those who use Twitter, the hashtags for today's event are Shape the World and LSE Festival. But I would please ask you to put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. And the event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. So the event this evening is going to be like a conversation. So I'll ask David some questions about his book. We'll have a chat, and then I'll open it up to Q&A to the audience. So without further ado, let's talk about the book, shall we? Great. Fantastic. So, so it says that the book, you were inspired in 2007 by the bicentenary of the abolition of the Slave Trade Act and you were looking to explore your own African roots, David, and you took a DNA test. And that part, that's part of the book, that's how it starts. Now, the book is described as part memoir, part call to arms. In it, you discuss this longing to belong. Can you tell us about, a little bit more about what drove you to write the book and about the choice of title, tribes, and tribalism? So, the first thing to say is, um, you've got to go back in time to the Tony Blair period in government and I was asked by Tony um, in fact it was one of those moments I think I was a junior health minister it was reshuffle day uh -huh. and I'd like to pretend that I was just getting on with my work but I wasn't I was you know by the phone just waiting <laughs> to get that call for promotion and um, it didn't come no it, it came very late in the day okay. and the number 10 operator comes on and she says will you wait for the prime minister and I'm I mean I've never met anybody who would say no I'm not going to wait for the prime minister <laughs> so I said of course and then Tony Blair came on the line and he said, um, hi, David, it's Tony. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I'd like you to become the new culture minister. And look, we've got to prepare for the commemoration of the abolition of the slave trade. And I'd really like you to help the government prepare and the country. And as part of that job, I was asked to... Um, take a DNA test by the Science Museum. Okay. Now, that then gets me to a place where I guess, you know, in an era of who do you think you are, and particularly, I think, for those in the audience who are um, maybe adopted 
or who are like me, the descendant of enslaved people, who are you and where you are from is a very deep question. Uh, because if you're African-American or if you are from the Caribbean region, uh, there are other communities in the world, you can't fully answer that question. And therefore I took the DNA test and described that process with, with great trepidation, not just for me but for my family, because it's a shared experience. Yeah swabbing yourself and I had to go to Guyana to one of my uncles to get him to swab himself and um, it came back and on my maternal line I am Temne Sierra Leonean or there was genetics of Temne Sierra Leoneans um, there were uh, Tuareg uh, which is the biggest grouping in Niger uh, which was incredibly uh, obscure to me at the time and fascinating and interesting and Bantu South African on my father's side and 5% Scottish <laughs> I can see it <laughs> uh, which I wish I had told Gordon Brown <laughs> and, um, and I described going back to Niger yeah um, which is a country I had never thought of in my life. Going back to the desert, it's a country really that's almost all desert. It's the poorest country um, in the continent of Africa. Um, and, um, and what it meant for these people to take me in, to be part of their ceremonies, to... Um, there is still slavery practiced in... Um, Niger and I went with Anti-Slavery International as a group to go over there um, and I wanted to get to a place called Farfar mm -hmm. where my genetic descendants were apparently based and it was a very spiritual experience and I felt a powerful sense of belonging um, in this um, black Muslim country. I had my Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali moment. <laughs> Um, this is me <laughs> as a Tuareg. Yeah. Yeah. There I am. Don't tell Nigel Farage. Because <laughs> he suspects that's who I am. <laughs> and he would be right. <laughs> Um, and um, I'm not going to leave that on there. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and I guess that, so then we come up to date. And I also explore in the book the other parts of my belonging. Mm -hmm. I, you know, in a way, the chapter that, that means the most to me is the chapter about growing up in Tottenham, about my mother, my father. Um, about the country of Guyana, where my parents came from, about what the Caribbean and South America mean to me. That chapter means a considerable amount to me. Uh, another chapter, the opening chapter of the book, that many are saying to me is the one that spoke to them most, uh, is about Peterborough, where I went to school and spent seven years of my life. And um, I'm not sure I would be a Member of Parliament were it not for the seven years that I spent in that city and in that town. It was a boarding school, um, it was Middle England, it was the 1980s, it wasn't all easy, there was a lot of discrimination, but there was also a lot of compassion and love. It's a wonderful school, some great teachers and some great friends. And I go back to that city and I meet with um, actually parents of friends of mine who talk to me about why they voted leave and how they feel about the city. They raise issues like immigration. And it's a very poignant chapter about where Britain is today yeah. beyond the city of London. Um, and so to, in order to get into this business of belonging, I had to explore my, my own background and my own tribes. And I, I think the point that... Now, this is to get to the slightly more intellectual bit of the right. book... Uh, I am not resurrecting the idea of tribes in an anthropological way, uh, which in your anthropology departments uh, would, is generally not seen as a great um, term, yeah. uh, has 
you know, I think in a post-colonial sense, uh, was often used by white Euro Europeans to describe things they came across that were non-white, uh, basically. Um, and so fell out of fashion quite rightly. And in an anthropological sense, you would talk about ethnic groups. Um, uh, you would not talk about tribes. But I'm using it in a modern neo-tribalist sense. Right. It was a term coined by Michel um, Mafia, Mafia Soli uh, in his book Le Temps Tribu, um, in uh, Le Temps de Tribu, uh, in 1988. And he's talking about... Um, these new tribes that are forming that are tribes of um, they're much more emotional tribes they are somehow founded on individualism where there is a sense of loss and emptiness where people come together now he's writing before social media uh, but how on it he was because what I explore is um, a sense of a lack of belonging that's very present in society. Um, in a way, we are the most connected age, but yeah, we are the most isolated age. This is an age of the breakdown of the family. This is an age of such rampant individualism um, that whether that's coming from a rights, liberal left perspective, or whether it's coming from a laissez-faire right perspective in which people are finding tribes um, uh, in a sort of identitarian kind of way, um, particularly on the, um, with social media, and, um, and how mental health and all those sorts of things are exploding. And we've got this crisis, frankly, of loneliness um, in society. And the book is an exploration, really, of that phenomenon, of, of what's going on, particularly not just in the UK, but in England, which I, I, my own diagnosis is that England is a pretty unhappy place, um, and what we need to do about it politically. You mentioned social media, and I think this is definitely, you know, it's, it, it is a factor. But in the book, you also talk about other causal factors. You talk about the economic, cultural, social that have led to the rise of this new tribalism. Can you talk a little bit more about these factors and why you write that the new tribalism is the enemy of the good society? Well, it's so there's a lot of things going on at yeah. the same time in this turn of the 21st century. Clearly, as a Labour politician, you would expect me to have a pretty um, acute economic understanding of what is going on. And the last time I was on this platform at the London School of Economics, I was speaking to Guy Standing's book. Um, and Guy Standing has done fantastic work on the new precariat. Um, uh, and indeed, indeed, my last book, in some ways, even though it was also about culture, was also a book that came out of this understanding of the riots. And that is to say that the riots for me represented back in 2011, on the one hand, a group of people with no stake in society because of an economic crash, mm -hmm. uh, greed that had left the cupboard very bare and in which a lot of um, wealthy people had got very rich and bankrupted um, much of our nation and the global community, but also in which when I looked at the looting and the ransacking and the way people would sort of, you know, fight to get that Xbox or that, you know, that trainer, um, there was something kind of sort of avaricious about that really. And, and, and it represented a kind of individualism that I was very concerned about. So, of course, we've got austerity. Of course, we've got what that creates when you have huge inequality. You've got an asset class, people who have homes, particularly here in London and great cities that have hugely risen in value and are effectively millionaires as a consequence of being able to buy a home 20, 30 years ago, and you have millennials who, unless their parents are relatively wealthy and they're going to inherit a lot, 
are not going you know what we've given them is climate change by the way and 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 you've got people who are living I mean you're lucky if you're in social housing to some extent mm -hmm. but you're in rented accommodation with rising rents and not rising earnings and life is so you've got an economic account that is obviously very real but you also have at the same time um, a technological uh, issue with the fourth industrial revolution the nature of work changing jobs going and let's get to the heart of that so let's talk about brexit Let's, let's talk about the lies. Yeah. Uh, there are people who I knocked on their doors in the last election. They voted Conservative. They voted Leave. And they believe that immigration in Britain is about to come down. But any, anyone really in this building, any economist will tell you that immigration in Britain is very unlikely to come down. Because when you do a trade deal with India, what do they get? Visas. When you do a trade deal with China, what do they get? Visas. Very, very intelligent people are about to arrive. Now, they may have to make £30,000 a year, but fine. They're going to come into this country, and actually, they're going to be more brown people in Britain than there are today. I find that ironic. Um, <laughs> you know, that's what's going to happen. Uh, and at the bottom end there's going to be huge skills gaps. And what do governments do when there are huge skills gaps? They go out to the world. And then you get to the Commonwealth and those other trade deals. So the same journey that brought my father here from the Caribbean in 1956 will begin again to deal with those skills. Immigration is not about to fall. It just isn't. Not under this government, anyway. So, so there's some myths being told. And, you know, I guess that the real story is a loss of jobs. And, um, you know, and um, a technological revolution and how we deal with those issues, which I think I talk about in the book, do have economic responses like a wealth, a wealth tax. But the other thing that's going on is what's going on in England. Why is England ill at ease? Why, since the devolution settlement in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, you go to those parts of the country and they're not ill at ease in the way that the, the English are? So I talk about Englishness and what that means to me, um, why we're living in an age where I'm subject to so much racist abuse, death threats, to challenges constantly about whether I can claim to be English and how, in the end, I think that we have to be in the business of nation-building once again, which is not a term at all that's very, that's used, that's very fashionable in this country, and um, how I think that we are in trouble if you, if you cede this ground entirely to the far right, um, and things like the English flag, things like nation become a territory for them. So can we have an inclusive vision that includes us all? And obviously I talk about um, the curriculum, colonialism and those sorts of issues, but I am interested in culture and what is our shared culture. And I suppose the way to put this is to say that what is on the rise in Britain is a populist nationalism mm. and very, very, very worrying an ethnic nationalism. Uh, now, it's, it's mimicked from Donald Trump. Um, it's very sad to see it in America because, of course, America has a history, a powerful history of white supremacy. But it's also had this amazing civic nationalism, this idea that you could be America, American wherever you came from in the world is writ through that country. And now that's being turned over, if you like, by Donald Trump with his appeal to an ethnic nationalism. And I'm afraid the same thing's happening in this country. And we need to replace it rapidly with a civic nationalism. You know, in the same way that anyone can come to the great city of London and be a Londoner, 
Um, we've got to have a vision of this country that's an inclusive vision, that's built around a set of values and shared institutions that are civic in nature. nature. And if, if, the, if the progressive or the centre-left account is solely about economics and not about culture and nationhood, then you're in trouble. So I suppose I'm harking back to a vision that gave us institutions like the BBC, which are shared. And then think of the BBC today and think of some of the challenges they have. Think of these journalists that are tweeting in real time and it doesn't feel impartial, it feels partisan, it doesn't feel anything like that shared vision where people could meet that was an institution created um, uh, in the last century. So that's the, that's the business that, that, that I'm turfing over, I guess, in the, in the book. Okay, and, and I see that. And I think, you know, you talk a lot in the book about ways forward, and you mention, for instance, economic reform, sound investment in the future, a radical redistribution of wealth from the 1%. We also talk about filling the vacuum of leadership on belonging, identity, and community. I think these are all good ideas. So what's stopping them from being implemented or adopted? Well, I guess at the moment, the populist nationalists are winning and progressives all over the world are losing. They ain't in this territory very much. They haven't got an account. Um, now, there will be different views in this room about why the Labour Party so badly lost the last general election. Um, uh, some of that may be about the leader of the Labour Party. Some of that may be about the economic presentation. Um, but clearly this sphere that I'm talking about um, has not really been a zone that the Labour Party has easily been in and um, I think has got to get in to some extent and so look whilst in the book I will defend uh, there's a chapter about identity politics yeah. and I know that's always a very live issues in universities <laughs> look let's be clear where I stand on that issue um, there's a sort of debate at the moment and it's coming from the right and the left and it's knocking identity politics and I always like to emphasize that in the end what are we talking about when we talk about identity politics we're talking about working-class people we're talking about women we're talking about LGBTQT we're talking about um, ethnic minorities who at the turn of the 20th century were not able to self-actualize in their own lifetime. They weren't able to be who they want to be. Mm -hmm. um, and towards the end of the 20th century, because of people like Martin Luther King, Mandela, Gandhi, Emily Pankhurst, Harvey Milk, could begin to do that. And then suddenly, just as that starts to happen, the dominant group, that has played identity politics for most of modern history, white middle-class men accuse us of identity politics. <laughs> so I'm really clear that there is, a, there is a role for politics based on identity, and I go into the history of why that is and why that's important. But I also argue that that is not, that cannot be the starting point or the end point. Mm -hmm that in the end we do have to, in democracies, have to find common ground. That politics is more than just a singular identity or even multiple intersectional identities. It's what we share and has to be that. And, and you know, some elements of the debate around identity politics can be very shrill, very narrow, and can leave quite a lot of the population pretty cold and pretty excluded from the discussion. So I think that there have been challenges for progressives in this debate. Um, they've ceded a lot of this ground, and um, you know, this is a book, I don't claim to have all the answers, yeah. but it's a book that wants to prompt us into some new spaces if we want, if we do not want this to be the age of the populist right. And let's be clear, Farage, Rees-Mogg, Trump, Bannon, most of what comes out is appealing to deep emotions, mm -hmm. deep senses of loss and belonging. 
So we have to be in a similar territory coming from a different perspective. And we have to do the work. We really, really have to do the work to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. My final question before I open it to the audience, I mean, listening to you, I'm thinking these deep emotions sometimes lead people to not want to listen, right? To not want to talk to each other. How can we come together? Where are the spaces? Around what issues can people who have such divergent perspectives come together? Well, look, if we, if we don't crack, there are, we're now moving into this isolationist period where people have been sold, in my view, a lot of hokey that ain't going to lead to a great place. There are huge challenges that can only be solved if we come together. Climate change cannot be solved by individual countries. It, it requires a supranational response, rampant inequality that really requires things like a wealth tax, transaction tax, again requires a global response. Immigration, countries taking their fair share of refugees, um, this fortress Europe thing has been a disaster. Uh, uh, again, it requires a global response. It requires actually um, coming together. But then domestically, I think, um, the, 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 the I, 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 what I'm concerned about is a, Britain is a heavily centralized country. Um, big decisions made in Whitehall, local authorities in Britain stripped of their powers, I mean literally reduced just to clearing the rubbish. Um, that has to change fundamentally, that is not the model in other parts of the world. Uh, we haven't got a written constitution in this country, we don't even know what our rights are. Uh, we are not citizens, we are subjects. Um, uh, I'm not going to get into the monarchy or not debate. But, How much time do we have? Subjects yeah. uh, with no written constitution. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and I think that there are new innovations. For example, I suggest, and this isn't going to go down well, I suspect, amongst liberals, but I talk about whether we should have a compulsory mm -hmm. national civic service. Now, let's be clear, I'm not about a compulsory national military service. No. But I am really concerned, if you come to a university like this great university, and I was at SOAS down the road, uh, I came to lots of great parties at, at LSE, by the way. <laughs> I did some things at LSE that I shouldn't have done. But this is before social media. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm very fond of this institution. But if you come... <laughs> If you come to the London School of Economics, you're one of the, you know, the lucky ones that makes it to a place like this. What you guys experience that are here and at other, other universities is that you, you kind of, you, you meet other young people from other parts of the country, other parts of the world. It's such a great experience. And the whole point of university is that interdisciplinary coming together. It's fantastic. But what about the other group of young people, much bigger than the group that come to university, by the way, and certainly much bigger than the group that come to Russell Group universities, who are left in Sunderland, who are left in Tottenham, mm -hmm. they, are they ever going to meet one another? Is there a means to bring them together? And who do those voters, those are voters who, some of them, many of them, voting in a different direction to a progressive class. And so I suggest a compulsory national... Now, the compulsion element makes liberals squirm. Oh, no, no, you can't. Yeah. No, it's got to be choice. Maybe, if you want to, you can volunteer. No, it's about a sense of nation. Who are we? Can we have young people contribute to our public services, learn something, come to different parts of the country? Is it worth spending money on that? Is that an important thing to invest in? That's the conversation I wanted to raise. Thank you. Let's open it up to questions. I'm going to take three at a time, please. You've got three men, by the way. <laughs> 
Am I first? Yes. Right, okay. Um, th- th- thank you. It, it was a very interesting talk. As an adopt- adopted person, um, that sort of set, um, common search for identity, I think, is very, very important. But um, enough backstepping from both sides. Your um, analysis of where you were looking about um, where the, the, the right has, has gone so far, which is to appeal to, to emotions, almost bypassing logic and go straight to emotion, and say that the, the, the left has to do the same. That's the bit which I would question you. I, I, or you're going to say no, that that wasn't the case. Maybe I misunderstood you on that, but, but um, that felt like wh- wh- where you were going with that what was, was to, to um, look at, look at um, the, the bypassing of emotion and the left following rather than moving forward into its own ground and taking, putting its flag in there and saying that's where, where it should be, sorry. Yeah. Well, one, that's not the case. Two, intellectually, uh, much of the left discourse in this country is shaped by people like Tawny. It's shaped by communitarianism. The idea that that wasn't cultural is just doesn't make sense. Sorry. Um, uh, so, so there isn't that you cannot do a leftist critique that is solely economic. It was never that. It was also based on a Christian socialist tradition, for starters. So I don't, I don't accept that. And certainly, it's the case. And look, this is you know this really matters to me. I am definitely seen in Britain as a prolific. Twitter. Um, you know, I sum up quite a lot about what's going on on a day-to-day basis in 140 characters. This is 352 pages, and it's absolutely not all we should do is be emotional and we can win. That is not what it is. You know, I am not losing our redistributive, our economic our class-based analysis of what is happening in our country and in the global world. Um, I am not departing from the defense that I have maintained in this country of minorities, of of all descriptions, and the articulation I just gave you on on what is described as identity politics. Uh, But what I am saying is that we have also got to be in a cultural zone, So I am talking about some new issues. I'm talking about the loneliness crisis in our country. There's a chapter in which I reflect on two people. Uh, A young man called Anwar, who is seduced from his bedroom to leave our country despite being raised here, born here. I meet his uncle. Um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a mini cab, and it sets in play a story that's about a young man leaving Britain, flying to Turkey, and then to Syria to join ISIS. Um, I also reflect on another man, older man, who, again, in the confines of his bedroom, thinks it's a cool thing to send me a death threat and to abuse and send death threats to five other members of parliament and ends up in court in Wolverhampton. And I go and sit in that court and I, you know, look this guy in the eye. So I want to talk about loneliness. I want to talk about mental health and depression. I want to talk about social media. I want to talk about the nation and who we are. And I, and it's my case that we need to get into this territory. I don't claim I have all the ideas, but we need to get into this territory. That civic nationalism means something. And that leaving this territory entirely to the right is a mistake. That's the proposition. It it, it, it It is more and, not less than. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I was wondering, maybe I missed the point, um, but how are the, or how is the ideas of tribe going to contribute to um, building or nation building in that sense? And if it is going to contribute, um, how how do we make sure that it doesn't contribute as well to the trenches between um, the different identity groups and the new identity groups that would be formed if we focus on such a thing as tribes? Well, the point is to bridge. The point is to find common ground. First, you have to recognize the the new tribalism that's happening in society, um, to call it out, and there's a lot of academic references in that. Now, there are some innate things in human nature, um, in both um, neuroscience and in anthropology and in sociology 
there are phenomenons of the way in which human beings have in-groups and out-groups. There are healthy tribes and unhealthy tribes. Um, you know, a fundamental part of, of the human being as we sort of became Homo sapiens is the means by which we, we are unique among animals in many ways. We cooperate. So there are really great things that we can land on, but you have to articulate also this new tribalism. And once you've articulated that, then you can create policies to bridge it, to encourage healthy, healthy tribes, and to challenge unhealthy tribes. That might mean, for example, and I definitely would call, call for this in the book, more regulation of social media. I do not believe in the current Wild West that we have. Um, I, do, I am very worried about big companies, monopolies, based in California, that are using psychologists um, um, uh, to come up with technology that drives a dopamine rush and actually drives division because the division drives sales. And, you know, it's clear that the medium I use most of, Twitter, is one of those mediums. And I'm not sure I would be on it if I were not a politician required in some ways to be in the amphitheatre of politics and discussion. So um, the key thing is it's about bridging, it's about common ground, it's about what we share, but understanding that tribal instincts are important. That's why, you know, it says how our need to belong can make or break society. Thank you. Right. Um, yeah. So going back to the compulsory civic service, um, so that goes back to what used to be national service in this country 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Um, I think there'd be a, a, a class of people who would resist that to the hilt, and they would be the upper class of whom there would be fewer of than the great middle class boys and girls. So, I mean, in principle, I'm all in favor of what you're proposing, but have you thought through some of the, these issues? It's a starter for 10. Look. Other countries do it. In fact, President Macron has just introduced it, reintroduced it in France. I mean, it's only a month, but he has reintroduced it in France. There are ways in which actually you can deeply incentivize it so people don't want to not do it. You can link it to student loan write-offs, for example. That's a great incentive. Uh, <laughs> you know, so believe me, there are, there, are, there are ways in which, if you want, you can encourage it as a society and stack it up in such a way that young people really want to do it. Um, uh, but equally, uh, you, know, you create exceptions. There are going to be groups of young people that can't or, or, or don't want to do it for, for very good reasons. So um, it's a... It's a, it's, a, it's a discussion point because it is the case that other big nations similar to our own are returning, returning to this issue as a means of bringing this together. And if you don't like my idea, which is fine, you've still got to deal with this question that I'm concerned about, the other 50% of young people. How do they meet? Or do we not care because we're in a hallowed institution um, and actually, we only really care about the middle class. That's the, that's the, that's the question I'm positing when I, when, I provo when I provoke in this way. The needs, as they're called, right, sometimes? Well, they're even, they're even more challenged. They're the, right. not in education. Uh, I'm not even talking about them. Them, you're yeah, talking about, yeah. 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 Okay. Lots of hands up now. Uh, okay, I'm going to let you three. ask the questions now. Three so, questions at a time. One, two, three. So, maybe there? Thank you very much for that. So uh, I, I'm all in favour of the Civic um, uh, National Service. I think that's a great idea. One Thank of the you so much. I, uh, <laughs> I probably am too old yeah. to qualify, sadly, now. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things I'm very interested in in terms of tribes is age divide. Um, and I, I think that there is a real generational split happening. And I, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on how we bridge, bridge that. Yes. Okay. And then... I'll take the three. Uh, hi. So I just wanted to say, obviously, civic nationalism seems like a far better idea than the ethnic nationalism we have now. Yes. But um, isn't there 
I don't know, always like when you draw people together, you're necessarily excluding people. And so if we are successful in this civic nationalism, aren't we just drawing the border a little wider and kind of, I don't know, like um, further isolating ourselves, even though it is a larger group of people? Okay. Do you know what I mean? Thank you. And then... Um, I just wanted to ask you what you think from a post-colonial perspective at speaking an event in the global north called Shape the World and what that raises for you. Great question. So we've got age, who's left out of civic nationalism and what does it mean to talk about Shape the World at the LSE? It's incredibly arrogant, let's face it. Uh, It's the LSE on point <laughs> it's why you're here it's what we learn you know to be really arrogant really calm someone was asking me you know in this book I obviously I talk about the way this is more personal I talk about the way in which um, having grown up in Tottenham in an inner city environment then got a um, a scholarship, really, to be a cathedral chorister in Peterborough and go to boarding school, and then ending up uh, at SOAS and then Harvard and then working in Silicon Valley. Basically, by the time I got to California, I was, like, riddled with imposter syndrome. I had lost a massive sense of who the hell I was. And there'll be many people in this audience that really relate to that. You know, you're either working class, you've then gone to university, and you've somehow you don't completely relate to your old friends, and you don't relate to your new friends, or you're a woman in a man's world, or you're, you know, you're you're gay, and it's 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 all these. You know, I had a powerful sense of being an imposter, and I lost my way. And I talk about being a period in my life when I got quite depressed. And, um, you know, I guess that, and then I, you know, and I, 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 I'm very frank about that and the lack of confidence that that can breed, right? It's the opposite of shaping the world in the sense that I then arrive in Parliament and I meet these guys. Wow! Their sense of entitlement and confidence and the world being shaped around them and their destiny to be Prime Minister Boris Johnson (laughs) is unreal and they learn that stuff um, in this case at Oxbridge where these institutions are riddled with their histories and their stories and I guess that gets to and it links to the other question around civic nationalism, because, look, I'm not suggesting that that civic nationalism is all based in the past. You know, that's got to be a living, breathing thing where we create new institutions that we can get around, but also where we challenge. I, I am not content with the way that history is taught in this country, in our schools, in our, in our universities, largely built around the two H's, Henry VIII or beating Hitler? (laughs) You know, how we broke away from Rome, gave it to them, and how we won the war on our own, which is a lie. (laughs) We won the war with the help of Russia and America and the Commonwealth. You know, black soldiers, black and brown soldiers is how we won the war, but that's not the story we tell. So um, it's, you know, and this country is yet, you know, I told you about leading the country's commemoration of the abolition of the slave trade in 2007, but I came up against institution after institution, from the BBC to the, you know, I'm not going to start naming museums and theatres, but they constantly wanted to talk about Wilberforce and abolishing slavery. The Brits are really keen to talk about abolishing it. They're just not keen to talk about the 400 years before. Right? right? And, and, and I don't say this because I think you've got to sort of ha- 
hang your head in shame. And it's, it's more about if you want to be a modern, inclusive country that's also informing genuinely debates about human rights and atrocities across the world, you've got to face up to your atrocities and your contribution in that story. That's how it's done. So uh, when I talk about a, 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 a civic um, nationalism and not an ethnic nationalism, please be, it's not entirely rooted in the past, it's rooted in the future as well. And when I talk about a written constitution, how you might do that, it's, that's part of that, of that story. There was one other question uh, on, on age. Um, that's very real. Um, the racist that I visited in court was a pensioner. Um, the, or, there's an organization I talk about, the um, CARES, C-A-R-E-S, um, community that bring young people together with older people across London. It's a fantastic organization. I describe some work that they're doing. There's another wonderful organization um, at the other end of the spectrum, Chance UK, bringing again, um, most often young um, hipsters uh, together with more challenged, urban, inner city young people who are really struggling to, for mentorship and to give them experiences that their parents or parent otherwise couldn't give them. So, so um, and there's some great examples of, of, of that particularly in countries like Japan. So that is a really important theme. And you know, we're living in this age where the baby boomers are still running the world. Look at the American election. I mean, these guys will not get off the stage. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally. Um, and, you know, I am really hopeful about the millennials the children of the baby boom is a big generation. My generation is smaller. We're Gen Xs, and we're a tiny little generation of mini baby boomers, really. But, but, the, but the millennials, you know, I'm very, very hopeful uh, with you guys, but, you know, you're some way from the levers of power. So in a way, books like mine represent how we're going to get through this in-between period, this next decade or so, before you guys start to get your hands on power and the baby booners finally, finally leave the stage uh, if they leave a planet for us at all. Exactly. Thank you. Okay, one, two, and then three. It's the woman in the back. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um... I'd like to say thank you, and um, I have two questions. So, do you think one question? <laughs> no, 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 no. no? This, okay. this young woman gets All two. Right. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, do you think the way history should be taught in this country should be impacted by institutions such as SOAS? Um, I speak as a history student, and also, do you think the alarming growth of nationalism in this, um, in the world right now, um, is very problematic? And how do you think we should act as act globally to tackle it. Okay. Um, the woman in the back? Yeah, she's got her hand up. Thank you. Hi. Um, thanks for your talk, David. I'd like to ask about that comment you made um, with regards to the resistance to talk about anything before Wilberforce. I was wondering about your opinion on Black History Month and also if you think a solution to the problem of not having these conversations and the resistance of owning up to Briti real British history, you know, the whitewashing of it. Is the solution to have White History Month, to have Whiteness History Month, where we spend the month talking really? about the things that don't... Yes. I want to know if you think it's necessary, because we're really struggling to push the true narrative in the curriculum. So in turn, just like we are with actually talking about black history and the African and Caribbean contribution to British history, it's ignored in the curriculum. So maybe the solution is to actually have a month where we really talk about what really happened and what it really took to get Britain to the position that it's in. Let's be honest. Let's talk about the mindset that it took to bring this power to, to bring this nation to power and not just talk about the, the Henry VIII and his wives, divorced, beheaded, died, okay. divorced, beheaded, survived. Like, why do thank I know you. that? Why do I know that? <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank um, you. 
the gentleman here on the um, end, and then the, the lady over there, um, and then I, th I don't think we'll have any more time. Because he's been having you. <laughs> Thank you, David, for the talk. As a recent immigrant myself, I hope to hear what you think about, you know, illegal immigration and this uh, legalization or its amnesty. And does the redistributive policy really really necessitate really necessitate at least the um, limiting of the speed of the recent arrival of those of such immigration? And how does it? Uh, you know, not fall into the trap of being a fortress Britain. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And then right there. Hey, David. I hope you, um, I won't be offended if you forget my question because this is four in now. Um, thank you so much. I'm really inspired by what you have to say and I look forward to reading your book. Um, you mentioned those baby boomers that just won't get off the stage. Um, I was quite sad, well, really sad to hear Elizabeth Warren was out of the race and that we have this position we're in with these two white middle-class men however um if biden became president he would still represent an incredibly progressive position um i wonder what you feel the common ground needs to be between the progressive and the very progressive because my worry is that this sort of divide between progressive politics may fail to be enough of a shield against the encroachment of the far right thank okay. you so about progressive politics, immigration, Black History Month, so as you decide <laughs> how you want to approach it. Oh, God. Why did we start in LSE? <laughs> no, no, it's great. It's, 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 Pick the easiest it's, one, it's right? It's <laughs> really fantastic. Um, so um, this, this question about history and colonialism, um, let me just say that I am so grateful for being able to be an undergraduate at SOAS. I had a wonderful, wonderful experience at SOAS. It felt very, it wasn't all perfect, no institution ever is, but, but being able to look at the curriculum from a perspective that wasn't entirely Eurocentric makes that institution very, very special indeed. And I was able to build on that when I went to Harvard. Um, and it enables me to sometimes pick up issues, and I talk about this in the book, um, that is not always fully understood by the mainstream, but shifts the dial of the debate. One example of this uh, that some of you might recall is the row that I got into with Stacey Dooley, who was asked to go to uh, Africa by comic relief and did that thing that happens. Uh, and yeah, it's called being a white savior. It's about a story you know, none of us in this room, I hope, would say that there is not a role for charity, there is not a role for philanthropy, there is not a role for empathy and compassion and support and giving. Of course there is. But I think in the 21st century, we understand that that is not the sole thing that is required. And I would say, as a um, progressive politician, that I also believe that there is a role for the state, for government, and therefore there's a question about why so many countries in Africa have been poor. And I would also say that it, why is comic relief in Africa if it doesn't understand the colonial history and the white supremacy that leaves those African countries with those borders that were drawn up in this country, in this plight that they're in? Why are you there, Richard Curtis, if you do not understand the continent's history? And why are you tweeting a photo, uh, Stacey Dooley, of a child with its finger in its mouth, I mean, it's not a picture that most parents would tweet of their child globally, with obsessed. What are you obsessed about? Mm. Where is the child's parents? What is the story here? Um, 
And why are you sending Ed Sheeran over to b- get hotel rooms for these homeless kids in Uganda? What is this about, really? If it's not about the celebrity, it's about putting the white European at the center of the story. At the center of the story. And I was very upset when I watched Comic Relief in 2017. There were three African children they showed dying on screen. There would have been outrage had they shown the same kind of poverty in this country and it were white European children dying on screen. Where is the dignity in showing young children dying on screen? And so I raise those issues, informed, if you like, by my experience of SOAS, and I think this is really important. I think it shifts the dial uh, on the debate, and I write about that um, in the book. We should be very concerned about the rising far right, about the way it's being mainstreamed, about the way in which Trump, Bannon, Bolsonaro, um, I'm really worried about what's currently going on in India, frankly. Um, I, uh, you know, there's a movement here, and it's winning, mm. and it's disturbing. Mm. It's very, very worrying, and we need to get our act together. Um, I. I, and it leads to the other question about what's happening on the progressive left um, of politics. Because I, I, let me just be clear about this. You know, because I, I, I grew up poor in Tottenham, I remember wanting in 1983 Michael Foote to, he seemed like a really great guy. I wanted him to win, I thought he would. Then in 1987, I thought Steve, uh, Neil Kinnock would win. 1992, I thought uh, Kinnock would win. And being told it would happen and it not happening. And then, as I got older, realizing that some of the folk who told me it would happen were not people who particularly suffered under the conservative government. I suffered, the people I was from suffered, right? So I've always been prepared to be quite pragmatic about what it takes and about the reality that this country is a deeply conservative country. That this country, history tells you this country is a conservative country. And so I worry about these debates that are happening on the progressive left of the spectrum where there are these rows between centrists, uh, between socialists, between, you know, it's obviously very present in the Labour Party. Uh, and I see it in the United States between Biden supporters and Bernie supporters. Um, I've met both politicians. I write about Bernie in the book, and I just don't think it gets us very far. You know, we, we you know, we we need to be able to hang together in a very coherent way, um, recognizing that. I mean, the huge challenging now in Britain, we, you know, the Labour Party, we lost 80 seats. We are such a long way from power. We need an 11.6% swing at the next general election. There hasn't been an 11.6% swing in Britain. I mean, Tony Blair didn't get an 11.6% swing in 1997. So the reality is a lot of folk who are not in this room tonight, who need a Labour government, ain't going to get one and may not see one for more than just one electoral cycle. So um, I think it's a very real, this is my contribution to the debate, but others will have their contribution um, um, to the debate. Um, Let's see how things pan out, particularly in the United States and indeed in the British Labour Party as we select a new leader. Let me declare my interest as the vice chair of Keir Starmer's campaign. Uh, On Black History Month, you know, so I, I obviously do a lot in October. Um, I would subscribe to the view that it's not just about one month, that black history, to a large extent, is British history. I get these comments from people saying, what about white history month? To which my response is, but that's the other 11 months of the year. Um, So, but again, I do recognize how these labels 
do play into a narrowing, what a perceived narrowing of the discussion because of these times in which identity and belonging are so um, essential to the body politic and how almost when you talk about black history, it feels um, exclusive, not entirely inclusive, and how people rush to identify themselves in a way that is about um, racial attributes or gender attributes or whatever the attributes are. And so I am also interested in how we find that common territory, um, which is why I want us to change the curriculum so we don't actually need a Black History Month, um, which is why I want shared institutions, new institutions, whether it's a compulsory national civic service in which we all participate from different parts of the country in environments that are not ours. We, we need, I describe it in the book as an encounter culture where we experience and encounter something different to what's outside the window. Um, so I haven't got all the answers, and I, I'm, I'm prepared absolutely to go to the ditch defending Black History Month, but you'll understand that I recognize the problematic nature of the need to have Black History Months. And I, and I, I suppose as a, um, as a left-wing politician, and as a graduate of SOAS um, and Harvard, I understand that there are two historic engines in the world. The people that do the really hard lifting that make countries like Great Britain great. And both of those sets of people have historically been treated very, very badly. One group of people are largely, history tells us, black and brown. They're a major engine of the world. They make our clothes. They pick our fruits and our vegetables. They pack so many of the goods that we consume. They manufacture so much. They work so damn hard those black and brown people in the developing world. And they're one engine. And I care a lot about that engine. I talk a lot about that engine in politics, both historically and today and now. But there's another engine. It's the engine that birthed the Labour Party. It's the engine that runs through a lot of my class politics. Um, it's the engine of white working people, largely in Europe, and to some extent in the United States, um, who have been so badly served by aristocrats and an elite, um, and um, who have you know, fared historically very badly. So they put down mines, put, down, put in working houses, jailed, sent to Australia. You know, there's a powerful story. And I guess that... Um, Part of this period of identity is how parts of that community have felt a sense of loss in this age of economic downturn and austerity and the political cultural response to that. And somehow we have to marry and understand the needs of those historic communities, those engines of the modern world in which we live and take so much for granted and unite them and not allow the Trumps of this world and the Farage of this world to split them asunder and create division because that's what the story is really about. And they're using, and that's to come to your question, immigration and fear of the other to do that. Yeah. The, the enemy is the man in Brussels, is the bureaucrat, is the civil servant. Um, the enemy is the refugee. Uh, the enemy is Iqbal, who moved in down the road. Um, and um, we have to counter that. Uh, but we also have to be clear-headed about some of the challenges. So, for example, one of the other things I explore in the book is countries that have a regional immigration system um, and not solely a national immigration system. This allows in parts of Europe, um, regions to, 
determine how many refugees or how many immigrants they want in a particular region. So if the northeast of Britain wants to have the skills gaps and leave London to have the refugees as they arrive, fine, okay, good luck. They may come round. But it allows a degree of local determination um, and variance across the country. And that may be an area of public policy we should be looking at more definitely for those of us on the progressive side of this debate. Uh, I know where London, I know where the South East, I know where cities like Manchester would be on that discussion. Um, but it allows parts of the country that are in a different place to come to different views about that and maybe over time to change their view because in the end who is going to pick the fruit who is going to do the social care who is going to clear those and clean up those hospital those those hospitals and those hotel rooms who is going to do that work and if that work is not done because you say you're going to keep out immigrants are your folk really going to step up and do that or are you going to find your economy declining because you aren't the people to do it? You know, as we deal with this coronavirus, and we, we need those nurses, we need those extra doctors, who are those people really? And how are we going to cope with the coronavirus without them? We're not, is the truth. Thank you. Can I just say that um, this book has been four years in the writing. It took a very long time, partly because of Brexit. <laughs> I, I, I did a sort of seminar um, here at LSE for the Masters in Inequality and Social Sciences uh, four years ago. I poached some researchers to help me write the book. Uh, a, a member of parliament like me cannot write a book without tremendous help. Everyone is at knowledge. Uh, there's another individual in the audience, David Matthews, who's here, who uh, is kind of, he's, he's from northeast London, he's black, his parents are Guyanese, you're getting the message, he's a journalist, uh, and, and, and he helps me find me in my writing. Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, I hope my friend Miranda Pine is somewhere here because if she is, um, um, she helped me with my, with you know that the stuff around race and the Caribbean and you know you I use a lot of people to help me be as good as I need to be. So thank you also. And there are others in the room. If Izzy is here, she was one of my researchers. Thank you very much. Um, there may be others. I can't see you. It's a kind of strange room <laughs> in which I can't see. You. But thank you. You're all acknowledged. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I'd just like to thank you, David, for this fascinating conversation and Q&A. And you're signing some books outside. So um, if you'd like to get a copy of David's book, it's on sale outside of the theater, and he'll stay around for some signing. <laughs> <laughs>